Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Nicholas McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. We also have our special guest, Jane Croft, our law courts correspondent. And from Germany, we're joined down the line by Jan Bayer, who is a lawyer. This week, we'll be looking at Barclays as the Crown Court throws out a case against them brought by the Serious Fraud Office. Secondly, we'll be looking at Deutsche Bank as its chairman faces possible dismissal. And finally, what's going on in the world of technology and banking. First, though, to Barclays. A decade ago, as financial crisis gripped the city of London... Barclays went to Qatar to raise emergency funds, part of uh, billions of pounds that it tried to raise to plug its balance sheet. Well, on Monday, the Crown Court in the UK threw out a case from the Serious Fraud Office against Barclays, which had alleged that Barclays engaged in improper activities in the way that it raised this money. Now, Jane Croft, our legal correspondent, is with us. Jane, the Crown Court has thrown out this case against Barclays. Why? Well, it's basically dismissed the charges against Barclays and these charges involved committing fraud by false representations and also unlawful financial assistance, both against Barclays PLC and Barclays Bank PLC, which is one of the main operating subsidiaries. Now, Barclays has put out a regulatory news service announcement saying what has happened and the ruling that has happened. It's also said that the Serious Fraud Office is likely to reinstate these charges by applying to a High Court judge to recommence proceedings via a new indictment of the same charges. So basically, it's saying to the stock market that the case isn't yet over. But any more detail than that hasn't yet been given. And of course, separately, if I'm right, there are four individuals from Barclays, former executives, including the former chief executive, John Varley, who are still accused in relation to this whole affair of criminal activity. That's right, yes. There are four former executives, as you say. John Varley, the former chief executive, is one of them. The others are also senior executives and they face criminal charges and their trial is due to start in January next year. So that's unaffected by this? That's unaffected, that's right, yes. Let me go to Martin quickly for a view of what the implications are for Barclays, because as Jane says, this is something that Barclays is obviously welcoming, but is cautioning that the SFO could appeal and this case could, in fact, be reinstated. If it was thrown out definitively, how important would that be for Barclays? I think it's good news for Barclays. I wouldn't overstate the importance of this, but I would say that in a series of recent events, it's another piece of good news that helps the bank in various ways. Let's just take a step back here and look at how the chief executive, Jez Staley, when he came in in December 2015, very much made it his strategy to clear up a lot of the non-core assets that have been clogging up the bank's balance sheet, but also to clear up 
many of the litigation and legal issues that have been overhanging the bank and its share price and preventing a restoration of dividend payments and perhaps even return of capital through share buybacks because there was uncertainty as how much these things could cost. And they've had some really good news on several of these legal and litigation fronts. Earlier this year, they reached a $2 billion settlement with the Department of Justice. That doesn't sound like good news, but actually $2 billion was a lot less than the Department of Justice was initially asking for. And Barclays challenged the US Justice Department and won that, it seems. That came off very well. The second thing was... And that, to be clear, was over a completely separate issue that was to do with mortgage securities. securities. Before the financial crisis. So very much like this Qatari fundraising one, a very long-running legal headache for the bank. The second one was earlier this month when UK regulators came out and gave the results of their investigation into Jez Staley's attempts to unmask a whistleblower a couple of years ago. And they agreed with the bank's board that he should keep his job, importantly for the bank. They fined him, which is pretty unprecedented, over £600,000. But for somebody who earns about £4 million a year, that's not a huge amount of money. And crucially, he could keep his job. So a series of big potential icebergs cleared by the good Barclays ship, if you like. And this is the latest one. It's the first round and it's not definitive by any means. But this SFO case has been hanging over the bank for many years now. And this looks like it's good news for Barclays in terms of the case looking a bit more shaky than it was previously. If it's good news for Barclays, it's bad news for this serious fraud office, Jane. It is, that's right. I mean, this SFO is in a bit of a state of flux at the moment because Mark Thompson is currently interim head of the agency. David Green, the director of the agency, has actually left now. And there hasn't been any news about David Green's successor. Mark Thompson is just filling in whilst the successor is due to be announced. There's also a lot of speculation about the serious fraud office and has been for a number of years about whether or not the agency could be rolled into the National Crime Agency. Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, floated that idea first of all in 2011 and revived it in 2014. And in fact, the Tory party manifesto last year advocated scrapping the serious fraud office. So there is a lot of questions about the SFO's future and obviously not having a permanent director is not good news. In the last sort of five years, David Green has won the respect of the city. He's basically overseen a number of convictions relating to the rigging of the London Interbank offered rate, so LIBOR. He's also overseen the introduction of deferred prosecution agreements, which allow businesses to reach a sort of plea bargain, really, with the SFO to avoid prosecution. And the SFO has been successful in striking a number of these deals, including a very high profile one with Rolls-Royce for £497 million. So he has had a good track record. And obviously, him leaving leaves a kind of hiatus at the top of the agency at a time when this ruling has come and it raises questions about the agency's future direction. Well, we'll obviously follow the future of the SFO and of this Barclays story very closely over the coming weeks and months. Thank you very much, Jane and Martin. Let's turn now to Deutsche Bank, and this week sees the troubled German bank's AGM, at which Chairman Paul Achleitner faces possible dismissal. An activist, has to be said, a small activist shareholder, has tabled a vote, effectively a no-confidence vote in Mr Achleitner. Laura, you've been looking at what shareholders more broadly think about this issue, The background here, of course, is that Mr. Achleitner oversaw what was a rather chaotic succession process for the chief executive in recent months. 
And he's obviously overseen over several years a sharp decline in Deutsche Bank's performance and share price. How do you see the AGM panning out? So I think, first of all, that's quite a kind description of the changing of the guard at Deutsche Bank. Rather chaotic is pretty mild. Paul Atleichner, you could argue, is kind of heading for death by a thousand cuts. So we saw further pressure heaped on him this week. We saw Hermes Investment Management, which is a big investment management firm, albeit one with a fairly small stake in Deutsche Bank, add to the chorus calling for Deutsche to start to consider plans for the succession of Paul Atleichner. They issued a statement to that effect on Tuesday morning ahead of the AGM on Thursday. Leitner, as you said, has already been under a lot of pressure, both about the way Mr. Cryan was appointed, the way Mr. Cryan was then removed three years into a five-year plan. It was all done in a very public manner. And there's also been a big shift in the bank strategy where under the current chairman, they've tried just about everything and they haven't really committed to anything. They were going to sell asset management, they were going to sell Postbank. And they kind of seesawed in terms of what they wanted to do with the investment bank as well. They were getting in, they were getting out, they were going harder. Now they're kind of pulling back a bit. So Paul Leitner has a number of challenges. Now, the odds are he is going to survive Thursday. The question is how much longer beyond Thursday can he survive? He will probably survive because there isn't an obvious successor who actually wants the job and you couldn't really blame them. But... In the fullness of time, it seems like it would be quite a sensible thing to do for Deutsche to think about who might be the chairman to take them into the next decade. The other point that may help him is they have some anchor shareholders, don't they? They have the Qataris with a big stake. They have the Chinese investor HNA. They have Cerberus and BlackRock is also a big investor. Yeah, they have those big anchor investors. And as far as we know, all of those big anchor investors support the chairman. They also have one of the world's biggest proxy advisors, ISS, which is urging the shareholders it advises to vote against the motion to dismiss him. The other big global proxy advisor, Glass Lewis, it's actually advising shareholders to abstain from the vote, which is obviously not going as far as to actually vote him out. But I think it's sending quite a strong signal telling them to abstain from the vote. And it'll be very interesting to see if there is any sign of a lack of support from those big four anchors. As you said, certainly the noises coming out of Blackwork were less than positive a few weeks ago. So we'll see what comes through on that. Let me go now to Germany, where we're joined by Jan Bayer. Now, Jan Bayer is the lawyer for Karl Walter Freitag, who is the activist shareholder who tabled the confidence vote in Mr. Achleitner. Jan Bayer, thank you very much for joining us. I suppose my first question would be, what prompted you as Mr. Freitag's representative to table this motion? The main issue, and you should see the two motions of no confidence against Mr. Achleitner and the structural proposal we made, proposing that the Deutsche Bank should refocus its business on European and Asian investment banking as well as wealth management. You know, it boils down to a very simple question. Mr. Freitag does not believe, and I think he shares this with a growing number of shareholders of Deutsche Bank, that Deutsche Bank has a credible strategy for a turnaround and that they are simply kicking the can down the road for a number of years now under the leadership of Mr. Achleitner. And therefore, we decided to table both these resolutions and put them on the agenda in order to enable shareholders to discuss whether or not Mr. Achleitner is still the right person as a chairman of Deutsche Bank. Okay, so I suppose nobody knows for sure until the AGM actually happens whether Mr. Achleitner will find his position untenable after Thursday or not. But what is your sense? Is your attempt to oust him going to work? 
you know, from our perspective, we were never really confident that, you know, institutional shareholders would vote Mr. Achleitner out in the AGM. But the motion to dismiss Mr. Achleitner was rather intended to give institutional investors an additional pressure point for their pre-AGM discussions to convince Mr. Achleitner to look for a successor in the second half of 2018 and leave Deutsche Bank in an orderly process. I think that is still a realistic expectation, especially given all the statements by uh, the proxy advisors, by a number of institutional investors. I think these discussions have taken place behind the scenes, and we very much hope that Mr. Achleitner would take the hint and start preparing a succession plan. And a final quick question, who would you like to see as the new chairman? I think there are basically two credible candidates that were named during the last weeks. One is Mr. Hildebrand of BlackRock. I think he, he was a former chairman of Swiss National Bank. He's, from our point of view, very much capable of filling this position. The other candidate could be Mr. Zarnes, who just joined Cerberus. And, uh, you know, the question is whether or not Cerberus will make him available for this position. But I think he would be ultimately the best person experience-wise to fill the chairman position and give Deutsche Bank a new and credible direction. Well, we won't have long to wait until we find out exactly what's going to happen on Thursday, certainly. Thereafter, we will watch carefully. In the meantime, Jan Bayev, thank you very much for joining us. So let's move on to the third topic and a kind of look at various angles on the technology story as it's affecting banks. Nick, you had a really interesting tale about how banks have upped their hiring of technology specialists in recent years. And Caroline, you've been reporting on an interesting report from UK Finance, that's the trade body conducted with consultants Parker Fitzgerald on the three areas of technology that banks are focused on that could change their business a lot in future. Let's go to that element first. Artificial intelligence, the cloud and blockchain were the kind of three themes that were identified. What does this report expect to happen in these areas? Yeah, so this report was a canter around the three big seismic technological changes that we've seen over the last couple of years, in particular with banks adopting these technologies, as you say, the cloud, AI and distributed ledger technology. And I think the report does a good job of flagging up how these three technologies have assisted banks in becoming a lot more efficient in how they store and search through massive amounts of data, but also these potentially systemic risks that they bring. What they're saying is that if regulators and big tech and financial companies themselves can all get together, then perhaps there's a way of working out how these new risks can be categorised. And that could actually have a follow through on banks' capital requirements on the op-risk end of things. And one of the areas is the cloud, which I know you've been writing about in recent weeks from a regulatory point of view as well, particularly regulators' concerns that the more data that gets stored on the cloud from banks, the more there could be systemic risks around that. Was that topic addressed, really? Yeah, absolutely. So I think regulators around the world, particularly here in the UK, have become increasingly concerned about banks' use of the cloud. Again, I mean, there's obvious cyber risks and op risk that don't need explaining. But I think also regulators are concerned that there are mainly three big tech companies that dominate cloud provision. 
that's Google, Amazon and Microsoft. And so there's what they call a single point of failure issue, that what happens if one of those companies, there's some kind of disruption, and they're providing services to hundreds of financial firms, that is a systemic risk at that point. And, you know, they're not regulated, these firms, in the same way that banks or insurers are. Absolutely. And that's going to be a, clearly a running topic going forward as the cloud comes to do far more work for the banks. Let me bring in Nick at this point, because you did a really interesting study of how banks are adapting on their employee side to cope with this huge swell of technology focused projects. I think the tally you had was 10 times more people were being hired now than they had been in the past. Actually, it was even higher than that. So we had LinkedIn looked at all of the job ads at banks across the EU over the last three years that have been posted on their site. And in the first three months of this year, there was 11.4 times more jobs for IT and engineering specialists than in the same period in 2015. And it's not just that the absolute numbers had gone up, but also you see the relative importance of these roles increasing in that the percentage of the total jobs had gone from less than 10% to almost 20 in the same period. So banks are finally taking technology seriously. Yes, essentially this two sides of it. One, what Caroline was talking about, there's a risk side of this. Certainly the banks notice there's a chance of being left behind if they don't catch up on this. But also a bit more of a sense that after 10 years of restructuring and recovering from the financial crisis, now they're looking for opportunities to actually return to growth with the sort of new business lines that could be opened up by technology. And the other aspect of this that is not captured in that data, but if you talk to the banks themselves, they'll always point out is it's not just that they're hiring new people in, but also people in roles that traditionally might not have had that much of an IT or tech knowledge requirement. They're also being retrained and this bank's doing a lot to try and improve their existing staff as well. A final thought on this. I think the data that you ran charted the adverts for jobs. And we do know, I think, that the banks have found it, certainly over recent years, tough to compete with technology companies and actually getting people in through the door, the best people. Is there any sense that you've got from your reporting as to how successful banks have been filling those vacancies relative to the tech companies? I think they've got better. A lot of the execs of these banks sort of saying a couple of years ago, it was a lot harder to try and attract the right sort of people, starting from the very bottom when they're talking about grad schemes and things. And they are explicitly, when they're designing them, thinking, how do we get someone to come work for one of the big British banks rather than for Google or for Amazon and so on? And then when you move up into the more senior roles, I mean, it comes through even in some job ads where someone like Lloyds Banking Group describes itself as a fintech. It's not just that the salaries have gone up, but also, you know, it comes through in them building fancy new offices to kind of match that beanbags and table tennis atmosphere that you get some of the big techs. Yeah, they certainly seem to have floors, don't they, reserved for tech people with all the hipster kits that they might expect at a tech employer. Very good. Well, on that note, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline, Laura, Nick and Jane here in the studio and also our guest Jan Bayer from Germany. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.